Letter fifty three of Young Americans Abroad, or Vacation in Europe, Travels in England, France, Holland, Belgium, Prussia, and Switzerland, edited by J. O. Chules, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter fifty three, Bristol. Dear Charlie, let me tell you of a charming trip which we have had this week to Chepstow Castle and its neighborhood. We have told you all about the beautiful scenery of Clifton, and the hot wells at this place, and the fine old rooks. Well, now we took passage in a little steamer, and went down the Avon between these lofty rocks, and had a new and enlarged view of this wondrous formation. The boat was well filled with tourists, as this is a fashionable trip. The Avon, for four miles, is quite rhinish in its aspect and one or two old castled towers on its crags afforded a sort of reminiscence of what we lately saw on the river of rivers we soon got out of the avon into king road and there met the tide setting strongly from the severn a large river which divides monmouthshire from gloucestershire we then stretched across the estuary and were in the wye one of the most romantic rivers in the country the scenery of which will occupy much of this letter after going up the river a little way, we saw a town upon the left bank and a noble castle. This is Chepstow. It is finely ensconced in a hollow. The town is irregular, and depends for its prosperity on its commerce. The castle is really a noble ruin, and crowns a high bluff which rises from the river. I do not know how any one can ask for a lovelier landscape than is open to the view off the bridge which spans the river. The castle was built by a relation of William the Conqueror. Its style is Norman, with more modern additions. The tide rises here to an elevation of from fifty to sixty feet. This is owing to rocks, which stretch into the Severn near the mouth of the Wye, and by hindering the tide, turn it into this small river. On landing, we engaged a carriage and a pair of horses for the excursion, and were soon off. We stopped for lunch at St. Arvin's, a village one mile off, and a beautiful place it is, a perfect gem of a country street. But the glorious scenery of the region calls off attention from the modest hamlet. How I should like, as in my boyish days, to make a headquarters here for a week, and then strike out for daily explorations. We passed by the fine mansion at Piercefield, and devoted our time to the glorious points of natural scenery on the banks of this most charming stream. For Americans can hardly call it a river. We walked now about two miles through an oak wood, in which is a sprinkling of ash and elm, till we came to the very edge of a cliff called the Lover's Leap. It overhangs an awful abyss, the depth of which is softened down by the woods which cover the neighboring rooks. A little off from this we came to the famous Wind Cliff. Its summit is fringed with wood, and covers its declivities down to the river. To describe the scenery, my dear boy, from this spot is quite beyond my ability. I wish that Sir Walter Scott had attempted it, and made this region the scene of one of his beautiful creations. From this spot you see all the course of the Wye, with its numerous sinuosities, in one place cutting out a few acres into a horseshoe peninsula. As the eye follows down the river, you gaze upon perpendicular rocky cliffs, and can hardly persuade yourself that you do not look at the immense fortifications of a town. But that peaceful little peninsula at my feet, it is called Slanicut such a farm, such elms, all forming a landscape unrivaled. But look beyond the Wye, and just away there is the noble Severn. Aye, that is a river. There it rolls and foams down through the rich country of Gloucestershire, and empties into the Bristol Channel. Then away, beyond to the right, are the bold, swelling hills of Somersetshire. 
I cannot but wish that Claude had seen the Wye and Severn. The noblest of his pictures would have been illustrative of this region. When we had sufficiently delighted ourselves with the far-spread scene, we descended by a winding path through the woods and down the almost perpendicular rock. The road was a very zigzag. We came down three hundred and sixty steps, and passing a rustic bridge, entered a moss cottage, the small windows of painted glass, the table the base of a mighty oak, sawn off and polished. The walls are lined with moss. Here we got refreshments, and talked of those who had been here with us on former visits, some in America, others farther off, and yet perhaps not, for we know not how or where some of our best friends exist, but we know and feel that they do greatly live. In approaching Tintern we pass the ironworks, which at night throw a solemn glow over the entire village. The cottages around are very humble residences. The inn is a small but cosy affair, and is not destitute of much real comfort. There is the abbey at the waterside, and opposite the rocky hill-bank and hanging wood. The access to the abbey is poor, but this is quite forgotten as you enter this glorious sanctuary of other days. There are few ancient edifices in Britain, now in ruins, which attract so much attention from the curious traveller as Tintern Abbey on the Wye. The beauty of the river is proverbial, yet has never been adequately described, but the best idea of its diversified charms may be gathered from Gilpin's picturesque scenery and observations upon the Wye. Tintern was a Cistercian abbey, and was founded in 1131 by Walter de Clare, and dedicated to St. Mary on its completion in 1287. The dress of the Cistercians was of white cassock, with a narrow scapulary, and over that a black gown, when they went abroad, but a white one when they went to church. They were called white monks, from the color of their habit. The dimensions of this church are as follows, length two hundred and twenty-eight feet, and the transept one hundred and fifty feet long, breadth of aisles each eighteen feet. There are in the sides ten arches, between each column fifteen feet, which is the span of the arches. The interior of this monastery presents the best specimen of Gothic architecture in England. The east window is a most magnificent affair, sixty-four feet high, and calls forth universal admiration. The very insignificant doorway was, no question, intended by the architect to form a strong contrast with the elevation of the roof. The abbey is cruciform, its ruins are perfect as to the grand outline, and I am sure we should like to pass the entire day within this venerable fane. The walls of the tower are seventy-two feet high, and covered with ivy, moss, and lichens, but show no indications of decay. Very few Americans visit this region, but I think that they can see nothing in England at all comparable to this ruin. Among the relics that are to be seen here is the effigy of a knight in chain-mail, the remains of a virgin and a child, and the head of a shaven friar. Here, too, are several monkish tombstones. We were obliged to resume our places in the carriage, and ride some twelve miles, in order to visit the finest baronial ruins in the kingdom. We reached the quiet little village of Ragland, and putting up our horses, gave orders for dinner, and then repaired to the castle, which we found nearby, crowning a slight eminence with its stately towers. We approached through a grove of truly venerable oaks and elms, and all at once we were at the warder's gate, and entering into the terrace, formerly the eastern court, a most splendid vision burst upon our sight. Here are three pentagonal towers, with machicolated battlements, and showing all the marks of war. 
This is the most perfect part of the ruin, and seems likely to stand for ages. The ivy clusters over the towers most gracefully. Off to the left, insulated by a moat, stands the remains of a tower, once the citadel. We advance through the Gothic portal into the second court, and here are shafts and arches, and grooves through which the portcullis used to present itself to the besiegers. Next is the paved court, where once the men at arms with iron tread, now a velvet lawn is seen, and many a vigorous tree is spreading its roots. Here we get a fine view of the majestic window of the Hall of State. Through an arch is the way to the kitchen. The fireplace has a span of thirteen feet, and is made of two stones. Then we come to the Baron's Hall, of noble dimensions. On the walls are the stone-sculptured arms of the Marquis of Worcester. The chapel was a narrow room, and nearly concealed by ivy are two effigies. The southwest tower contained the apartments occupied by Charles I after the Battle of Nesby in 1645. The grand terrace is in tolerable order, and you proceed to it by a bridge. We ascended the towers and gazed on majesty and ruins. We saw nothing on the continent finer than Raglan Castle. The prospect from the great tower is the finest that can be imagined, and I almost fear to tell you its extent. You may imagine that we felt unusually interested at this place, from the fact that here the Marquis of Worcester invented the steam-engine. The castle was devastated by the parliamentary troops under Fairfax, having surrendered in 1646. The defense was gallant, but unavailing. The warder of this castle is a very gentlemanly man. He took us into his apartments in one of the towers, and we found that he was a very respectable amateur in painting. Some of his oil paintings were very creditable. An infant girl of great beauty, his daughter, answered to the name of Blanche Castle May, and was the first-born child under that roof since its desolation. Here, as well as at Tintern Abbey, I obtained ivy roots for Mr. Hall, and hoped to see them flourishing on the walls of his beautiful stone house in Rhode Island. We retired slowly from this romantic ruin, and at the hotel found an excellent dinner. One dish was fit for a king, Sowen, young salmon, or a species of salmon, for there is much dispute among naturalists as to the identity of these fish. Anyhow, they are fine beyond any fish. They were about two and a quarter pounds each, and are so delicate that they do not well bear transportation. We returned to Chepstow that evening, having a fine ride through a new piece of scenery, and were quite ready for a sound night's rest. In the morning we looked at the castle in Chepstow, which is remarkably fine, and is of extreme antiquity, some of the arches of the castle, chapel, indicating clearly a Saxon origin. One of the priestly legends is that this chapel was built by Longinus, a Jew, and father of the soldier who pierced the side of Christ. This was the belief of the ancient population of this charming region. All around this town Roman coins are frequently turned up and I obtained from a gentleman a very well-preserved Caesar silver coin, dug up a day or two before. The castle was, for more than twenty years, the prison home of Henry Martin, one of the regicides. He is buried in the parish church, and in the north transept is the following acrostical epitaph, which he composed for his monument. Here, September ninth, 1680, was buried a true-born Englishman, who in Berkshire was well known, to love his country's freedom above his own, but being immured full twenty year, had time to write as doth appear. His epitaph. Here or elsewhere, all's one to you, to me. Earth, air, or water, gripes my ghostly dust. None know how soon to be by fire set free. 
Reader, if you old tried rule will trust, you will gladly do and suffer what you must. My time was spent in serving you, and you, and death's my pay, it seems, and welcome too. Revenge destroying but itself, while I, to birds of prey, leave my old cage and fly. Examples preached to the eye, care then, mine says, not how you end, but how you spend your days. Colonel Henry Martin was one of the noble asserters of English liberty, who dared to oppose a weak but cruel and capricious tyrant. If ever a monarch was a tyrant and a despot, it was the first Charles. No American citizen who thinks that Patrick Henry, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, and George Washington were praiseworthy for the resistance which they offered to the aggressions of George the Third, can for one moment fail to reverence Eliot, Hamden, Martin, Wally, Ludlow, Pym, and Cromwell for their noble opposition to Charles and his tormentor-general, that incarnation of sanctimonious cruelty, Archbishop Laud. It is one of the signs that a good time is coming, that public opinion in England, as well as in America, is fast setting in favor of Cromwell and his noble co-adjutors. They opposed measures rather than men, and what proves that they were right in expelling the Stuarts from power is the fact that when, by infatuation, the faded race was restored, and again played over former pranks, the people had to oust the family in 1688, and thus, by another national verdict, confirm the wisdom and patriotism of the men who had formerly dared to teach a tyrant the rights of free men. Martin was a noble spirit, but his morals were not as correct as those of his political associates. The game now played by the advocates of high church and state notions in England and America is to represent the Republican Party as illiterate and narrow-minded. A viler falsehood was never sworn to at the Old Bailey. The leading men of the party who opposed the royal tyrant were scholars and ripe ones. If any man doubts it, let him read their speeches, peruse their lives, and study their writings. Prynne did not lose his acquirements nor his brains when Charles and Laud cropped his ears, and, loving the sport, came back for a second harvest, and grubbed out the stumps, remaining from the first operation. Read his folios, quartos, and octavos, and from one of these men estimate others. If you want to know the real character of Cromwell and his party, as to their knowledge and love of good letters, look at the patronage which the government gave to learning. Owen was Chancellor of Oxford, Milton and Thurlow were secretaries, and their friends were called into public life. Were these men barbarians and enemies to learning? The men who were educated at Oxford and Cambridge at this period were the ornaments of learning and religion for the next forty years. The day has gone by forever when Cromwell's name can be used as synonymous with fraud, ignorance, and hypocrisy. Kings and prelates may hate him, but a liberty-loving world will enshrine his character in the sanctuary of grateful hearts and faithful memories. After crossing the Severn at the Old Passage, or Oust, where it is two miles wide, we took carriage to Bristol. The parish of Oust gave a church living to the immortal Wycliffe, who received the appointment from Edward III. The drive to the city was a rich enjoyment. Every acre is in the highest cultivation, and the charming villas of the merchant princes of Bristol make the eleven miles an entire garden scene. Four miles from the city we came to Henbury, regarded by the citizens as their finest suburban spot. It is indeed beautiful. There are here about a dozen exquisite cottages, built in 1811, by Mr. Harford, who lives in Blaise Castle. The founder's object was purely benevolent, to provide a comfortable asylum for aged females, 
who had income enough to support them, if only relieved from house-rent. The forms of these cottages are all different, but they were the earliest specimens in our times of the adoption of the old Elizabethan style. They are perfect bijoux, and the taste displayed in their shrubberies is very great. Blaise Castle is a fine building, and surrounded by noble woods. The castle is a circle, flanked with three round towers. I ought not to omit that we had on this trip the pleasure of being accompanied by a gentleman from Bristol, whose taste and perfect knowledge of the ground afforded us much gratification. I allude to Mr. Dix, author of Pen and Ink Sketches, which formerly appeared in the Boston Atlas. Mr. Dix was with us at Windsor Castle, and when he heard from Weld French or George Vanderbilt that Robinson's birthday would occur shortly, he noted it, and sent James the following pretty lines, which reached him May 15th in Paris. I think you will be pleased with them. To James A. Robinson When wandering neath old Windsor's towers, we laughed away the sunny hours. You asked me for a simple rhyme, so now accept this birthday chime. No poet I, the gift divine, ne'er was, and never will be mine. But take these couplets which impart the anxious wishes of my heart in place of more aspiring lay, to greet you on your natal day. Boy of that country of the brave, beyond the Atlantic's western wave, I, dweller in the motherland, a welcome give with heart and hand. And on your birthday breathe a prayer, that you may every blessing share. That your world journey may be blessed, with all that may prepare you best, for the approaching eve of age, the end of mortal pilgrimage. Upon your brow of youthful bloom, I would not cast a shade of gloom. Yet did I say that life will ever flow onward like a placid river, with only sunshine on its breast, that ne'er twill be by storms distressed? I should but flatter to deceive, and but a web of falsehood weave. Yet checkered though life's path may seem, life's pleasures are not all a dream. What shall I wish you? I would fain that earthly greatness you may gain, but if that guerdon is not sent, be with some humble lot content, and let this truth be understood. Few can be great, all may be good. Power, pomp, ambition, envy, pride, wrecked barks adown life's stream may glide, ruined by some fierce passion throw, ere reckless o'er time's brink they go. But if fair virtue grasps the helm, nor storm nor wave can overwhelm, that many happy years be yours, seek truth which every good ensures. Press on, though clouds may intervene, and for a moment veil the scene. Think of the great ones of your land, and like them strive with heart and hand, to leave a name when you depart, which shall be dear to many a heart. Determine in life's early morn, all good to prize, all ill to scorn, and aim to live and die as one, worthy the land of Washington. Yours affectionately, J.O.C. End of letter 53. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.